we are in a transition point in our teaching here at, as a church. We've been working through the book of Exodus, talking about God's formation of his people. But over the course of the next month, we're going to shift our focus to the question of justice and righteousness in the world. Not how does this world become just, because any of y'all who have lived for five minutes know this world becomes increasingly unjust all the time. But rather, how do we as God's people be a righteous nation? Not a nation in the sense of the United States, but a righteous people. A people who do justice. A people whose values and behaviors stand in contrast to that of the world. So we'll be teaching over the course of the next month, looking at issues of race and society and justice and mercy. And so this morning, I'm going to bridge us between what we have been talking about in Exodus and where we're going. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nate, and I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. And I want to take a moment just to tell you guys what that means, because it doesn't always mean what people think it means. When I say, hey, I'm a pastor here at SOMA, some folks automatically think, okay, well, that guy works for the church. That's really not what pastoring means. As a, as a shepherd of God's people, pastor is just a Latin word that means shepherd, my primary responsibility is to care for and to protect the flock from false teaching. And I am not a pastor here at SOMA because somebody gave me a job. I actually work for a company just down the street. This is, I don't get paid anything to do this. But I'm a pastor here because the church has looked at my life and my family's life and my teaching and said, okay, these things line up with God's word. And that's true for Pastor Andrew. That's true for Pastor Bobby. That is the core essence of what we are trying to do and be as shepherds, people who take care of you, people who protect you from false doctrine. You can have confidence in us because hopefully you can see our lives and you can look at the things we do and say, and say, hey, this lines up with that. And the reason why I mentioned that this morning is because this morning I chose this passage especially. It's really personally important to me. And I hope that it's something that you guys can look at my life and my choices and say, okay, he's trying his best to do this. This is a passage that has transformed the way I think about myself, the way I think about my community, the way I think about our church. It's really deeply personally important to me. And I'm going to mention a lot of things, a lot of problems that I have, a lot of my own sin, and y'all are going to be under no illusions that I'm perfect or that I've adopted this in some kind of like perfect way. But I really do want to encourage you this morning as someone entrusted with caring for you and as someone entrusted with teaching truth. I hope you all can look at me and those of you that know me well, and a lot of you know me really well and some of you don't know me at all. But I hope people will look at it and say, yeah, this, this is a person, this is a, a family that tries to live out these truths. We're going to be spending our time in the book of 1 Peter, chap, uh, page 588 in your blue Bibles there on the pews or the chairs. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please keep that. That's our gift to you. This is going to be uh, an open Bible morning. Not that Every morning here at Sunday isn't an open Bible morning, but we've been working through Exodus, so we've been telling big stories, right, big chunks, like a whole chapter at a time. And when you're doing a whole chapter like that, you don't always, like, 
get down and dive into every single verse because you're trying to tell the whole story. Well, this morning, we're going to make a little bit of a transition, so please keep your Bibles open. We're going to be going through uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Before we do, a lot of times when we uh, do public reading of Scripture, we're reading the passage that we're going to talk about. This morning, I'm actually going to ask Tez to read the chapter right before this so that you guys get a little bit of the context of what we're going to be reading this morning in 1 Peter 2. And I hope by the end of this morning you will see how this connects to God's story of his redeeming of his people, of his saving of his people from slavery in Egypt. And I hope you can see also what that means for us and how we're supposed to live as a result. So Montez, if you would read uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, again that's on page 588. This is a letter from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the, provident, in the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God, the Father, knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire, as fire tests and purifies gold. Through your faith, it is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory, honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. This reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about the gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering, he was great glory afterward. They were told that their message were not for themselves but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Verse 13. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope and the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living and satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray have no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during the time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. 
And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has revealed for your sake. Verse 21. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because you have raised. He raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever. Because it comes from an eternal living word of God. As scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of God, the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is the good news that he preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. And the word is the good news which he preached to you. Brothers and sisters, the totality of everything we talk about every single week here, and certainly over the last several weeks, is summed up in that chapter. You get the whole story of all of the goodness of God in 1 Peter 1. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about 1 Peter 1 because I'm really excited about 1 Peter 2. But just to summarize what Peter tells us, he tells us that God's power, almighty God, cosmic creator of everything, that his power and his foreknowledge of all of time and history, that this he ran, used to ransom us in Jesus Christ, that we were captives and through the blood of Jesus Christ, he ransomed us. And that the whole telling of the Old Testament, all of those books, that whole story of Exodus that we've been reading about Moses and the Israelites and Egypt and the plagues and the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments and everything that came after it, all of that was written to predict what was going to happen to us. That God did all of those wonders, not just for the people that were there to see them, but he did them for us. And because he did all that for us, he called us to live holy lives, separate lives. Because that's the way he is, to be holy as he is holy. And as a result of that, we ought to love each other. We ought to love each other as brothers because all the perishable things of this life are passing away. And that is the good news. Man, if you don't listen to anything else I say today, listen to that. That is the good news. God loved us. He saved us. He ransomed us in Jesus. And because he did, because he chose us for himself, he now wants us to love each other. So everything else that we're going to talk about this morning is just an unfolding of those core ideas, right? What do we do? Everything we do in first, we talk about in First Peter 2, that's just going to be the application and the summary of what we've been talking about in First Peter 1. And it's the application and it's the summary of Exodus 1 through 20, of God rescuing people, of him pulling them out of slavery, of him setting them free of him making them a nation of worshipers. You want to know what the point of all that is? Well, I'm glad you're here this morning because that's what we're going to talk about. This is the application of the summary. If all this is true, so what do we do? What does it matter to us that God saves his people? 
And here's what it means. It means that our common identity, our common identity as God's chosen people has to be more central to the meanness and the unis and the usness. That way we think about ourselves. Our common identity as God's chosen people has to be more central to the way you think about yourself than all of our political affiliations, our national citizenships, our ethnic identities. And this implies that we are now part of a culture of love that brings glory to God and confounds the world. The world will be confused and befuddled by everything that we do because now we share a culture of love, because now we share an identity that is not based on all the things that everyone else's identity is based on. That's what we're gonna talk about this morning. So dig in with me, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. We're gonna start in hard. So put away then. So put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Peter's basically saying, take off the old clothes that you were wearing. You've had a bath. Take off the sweaty t-shirt that you had on, right? It's just like when you go and work out and you're dripping with sweat and you go take a bath and you don't go and put your gym clothes back on. They're nasty. That is the exact image that Peter's using here. He's saying you're nasty, but then you had a bath, so don't put these things back on. Maliceness means mean-spiritedness, viciousness. Deceit means underhanded, crafty, cunning, treachery. Hypocrisy, that idea that you want to create a public impression that is at odds with your real purposes and motivations. Slander, the act of speaking ill of one another. Peel that stuff off like a sweat-soaked shirt. And brothers and sisters, when you encounter people or teachers or figures who are malicious and deceitful and hypocritical and envious and slanderous, that ought to scare you. You ought to run in the opposite direction. That is not someone to identify with. You should not be that kind of person. We should not be that kind of people because God's chosen us for something different, something special. Verse 2 and 3, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. The word here, when Peter says uh, pure spiritual milk, <laughs> the word that he actually uses means word. It means the word Crave the milk of God's word. It means reasonable. A lot of times we think of spiritual as like fluffy or squishy. Like, oh, that's spiritual. Like it's like got to do with crystals or things like that. The word Peter actually used means reasonable. It is a reasonable thing to crave God's word. God's word is reasonable. It means it involves your mind. It involves logic and thinking. It is not an unintellectual process. I, I love that song, and I love the way you guys did it, but that one line, it's like, peace I can hardly think. Like, I, I got a problem with, <laughs> with that lyric, right? Like, that's not great, because the actual peace of God allows you to think. It opens our minds so that we can actually think and be reasonable. 
We don't have to turn our brains off, but instead, like newborn infants craving milk, we long for God's word because it grows us up into salvation. We now hunger for something different and something better. And if even if somebody comes along with a new chicken sandwich, well, <laughs> even if somebody comes along with a new chicken sandwich that's extra spicy, we know, we know what chicken sandwich is pure. I'm sorry, I had to do it. I love you all too much not to, not, not to go there. Christ has changed our palate, and the things that used to taste good no longer taste good to us. We know truth from error. We know what's lies. We know what's deceit, and now we reject it. Verse 4, as you come to him, which is saying as we move toward Jesus, as you're moving toward Jesus, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in, this, in this, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves become like stones and are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He is a life-infused rock. He is a boulder of truth that you put down as the cornerstone and you build everything else on top of. And what do you build on top of a life Infused stone, other life-infused stones. God is building a house, and he's building it out of us. Brothers and sisters, we have an advantage over many churches because we're sitting here meeting in a school, and we're not under any illusions that this is our church. We know that we are the church, right? We don't have to confuse our language and say, oh, this is the church, and we mean a building, because we don't have a building, so we know that we are the ones being built together as living stones. And listen, have you ever seen a stone wall? Not a brick wall, a stone wall. How do you fit all those weird-shaped rocks together? Mortar, right? Because rocks don't naturally fit together real well because they're weird-shaped. And we, as living rocks, are weird shapes, and we don't always fit together very well. We need mortar to bind us together. Somebody uh, take a look real quick with me. Um, uh, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Flip back a couple, verse, couple chapters. I don't have a page number for it. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. 573. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another, forgiving each other whatever grievances you have against each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. When you have a stone wall made out of poorly fitting living stones and you need to bind them together, what's the mortar that you use to bind them together? What do you put on over all things? Love. The more weird the stone, 
the more love you slap on the wall. The more the stones don't seem to fit together quite right because they're of different shapes and different sizes and different backgrounds, the more love you put on the wall. And God infuses us with love and he puts more love on us and he builds us up into a holy dwelling in which he lives. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the outcome of the ages of teaching of all the rescues and the miracles and the prophets. This is what everybody was longing to look into. It was God's dwelling with man, joining us together with the chief cornerstone and building us up to turn us into a holy priesthood. Somebody read for me Exodus 19.6, page 35. We read it a couple weeks ago. Bobby called it out. Exodus 19.6. Read it out loud. What did he tell the Israelites 1,500 years before? I'm making you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what does Peter tell us? You are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God. It's always been one plan. God's been unfolding it through the ages, showing us piece by piece, building an argument for us to know. Starting with one man, Abraham and his children, building on that a whole nation. And not stopping there, but calling the whole world to repentance, putting together weird fitting living rocks, binding them with love. And the result is that we should be offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. What does that mean? 552, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Somebody write, read it out loud. 552, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Man, how exciting is that? The spiritual sacrifice that God requires is not your money, it's not your blood, it's none of these things. He wants your life presented to him as a living sacrifice. And he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Engage your mind with him. Don't think about things in the way that the world used to think about things. Brothers and sisters, our common identity as God's chosen people has to be more central to the us-ness, the me-ness, the you-ness of you. When you think of yourself and who you are, you think, I am part of God's people. That is the first thing you think. And then it implies that your culture of love, the values, the beliefs, the behaviors, of love that you have as a member of that people, that those will bring God glory and they will confound the world. Peter goes on, he keeps making this argument. Verses six through eight, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. God is building that wall. And while we are being built up 
Everybody else is tripping all over themselves. That's what's happening. We are being built into something new, something holy, something amazing. A spiritual building in which God lives that anyone could look at and say, oh, God lives there. You all have seen that house on the block, that neighbor that's not taking care of their house. And you look at it and you're like, who lives there? Right? The windows are boarded. The garage not painted. The yard's not mowed. You all look and you, everybody knows, oh, who lives that house? When the world sees our house built out of us, a wall of a bunch of weird stones bound together by love, they will look and say, God must live there. How beautiful must that house be for people to look at it and say, wow, God must live there. And meanwhile, the world is tripping all over that rock. They crave. That's because the same word that you crave, that same spiritual milk, that milk of the word, the same thing you crave, they reject. They look at it and say, that's foolishness. That can't be. There are other identities to have which are better than being God's people. There are better things to belong to than God's house. Build a monument to yourself. Tell everybody else how great you are. And they trip and they fall because our common identity confounds the world. Peter moves on, verse 9, he calls us, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We can look at those words, and the word race there can mean tribe, family, a genos, a people born of the same stock, people with the same father. He says, you are a chosen race. You, as believers in Jesus Christ, being built up into a house in which God lives, you are now a race of people with the same father, the one and only God. When he calls us a holy nation, the word there is is ethnos. We are a new ethnicity, a new thing, something completely new and different. And we are selected for the purposes of declaring his praise. That's why he picked us. That's why he picked us as weird as we are, as broken as we are. Look, we don't come as these perfectly formed bricks. Most of us have been broken at least in half. I know a lot of your stories. You all know mine. How many places are we broken in? How many parts of us have we lost along the way? And God was shaping us, cutting off the perfect square edges, making us weirder, putting more mortar on us. Because some of us are hard to love. I know I am. And he is doing that. Because once we were in darkness and he wanted to show through his grace how amazing we are. Somebody, uh, page 527, John 17, 23, y'all are going to get sick of this verse. 
if you're not already. We go to this verse all the time. John 17, 23. If you want to declare God's righteousness to the world, as Tez prayed earlier, if we want people to know the truth about Jesus Christ, page 527, John 17, 23. When you got it, read it loud. If we want the world to know that God sent Jesus and that God loves them, which I think is more or less what we want the world to know, right? If you're a believer, you desperately want the people around you to know that God sent Jesus and that God loves them, right? The way we do that is that we be brought to complete unity, that we be one family, one race, one nation, one living dwelling in which God lives. That unity proclaims and declares, not just to the world, but to the heavenlies, that our God, he is one God. That our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, existing in a diverse relationship with himself, is one God. And so God takes stones of every shape and size and color. He puts love all over them and he builds them up into a wall and the world sees it and they will be forced to acknowledge, oh, there is a God here. Our common identity of God's chosen people has to be more central to the way we think about ourselves than ethnic political, national affiliation, and it implies a culture of love that brings him glory and confounds the world. So if that's true, how do we live? What do we actually physically do? How do we take this from just being high-minded words and actually put it into practice in our daily life? Verse 11, brothers, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is not our home. I'm not going to go too deep into this point because I'm going to speak on it again in a couple weeks. I love the city of Indianapolis. I was born here. I was raised here. I have a fierce love and identity with this city. It is important to me. But this is not my home. We can't get caught up and the issues of our home. Why am I arguing with some dude on Facebook at 5 a.m. about public policy in the United States? Why am I even doing that? This isn't my home. You know, I used to live, I used to live in Argentina for about nine years. My family lived in South America. And when I lived there as an outsider, I was interested in what was happening in the political system in Argentina, but I wasn't invested in it. I care about the people that I was neighbors with and that I was working with. So yeah, it was important to me to know what was going on, to be aware of the issues that were going on. But like, if they had voted for an idiot, I didn't care. I mean, not really. It didn't really change my life. They weren't, it wasn't my government. It wasn't my people because I was in exile. I was an outsider. I was looking to bring a better way of life be something beyond all that. And now I move back here and I find myself caring way too much when in reality, I'm an exile. I'm a sojourner. A sojourner is a migrant. 
And Peter says, you are migrants. You are here for a temporary period of time. Identify as such. Think of yourself as such, as an exile, as an outsider. And stay away from the passions of the flesh. What he means is craving the physical things. We already talked about what we should be craving, God's word, to open our minds, to think about things. Instead, what do we crave? What do we do when we struggle with depression and anxiety? What do I do when I'm angry at my coworkers? I eat. I know y'all can see that. (laughs) But I eat. Because I want to fill myself up and make myself feel better. And Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, craving the physical things. Jesus said, don't worry about what you eat or what you're going to wear. Right? Isn't that what he said on the Sermon on the Mount? Peter says these things wage war against our souls. We use physical things to make ourselves feel better. It's food. It's sex. It's TV. It's video games. It's work. It's your kids. It's your husband. It's your wife. Your boyfriend. Your girlfriend. It's doing ministry. We use physical things to make ourselves feel better. And brothers and sisters, it does war against our souls. Because what we should be craving is spiritual milk. What we should be craving is God's word and the comfort that it brings. Peter goes on to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see good deed, your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I don't love the way that they translate that word Gentiles there. The word really means the nations, the peoples, the ethnicities of the world. We should be living such good lives among all of the ethnicities of the world that even when people point at us and say, this is wrong, we know that they will glorify God someday. Don't think of this as Gentiles as just like outsiders, but people of every ethnicity in the world ought to look at us and say, wow, I'm going to glorify God because of their good deeds. We will be slandered for doing the right thing when the world says it's wrong. And if we aren't being called out for upending their system, we probably aren't doing our job. If nobody looks at us and has a problem with the way we're living, something's wrong with us. If nobody looks at us and says, why are they defending those people that I'm trying to oppress? Why are they loving those people that I've said I, that I've said I want them to hate? Why aren't they upholding me and my power? They will look at us and they will call us all kinds of names because that's what they did to Jesus. They called him a rebel and a blasphemer. And they said he's going to take away our nation. He's going to cause all this political chaos. So why should we be surprised when they do the same things to us? More to the point, why aren't they doing the same things to us? These are the questions we're going to try to be answering in the coming weeks. Because our common identity as God's chosen people has got to mean more to us than more to our self-conception, our self-perception than any pre-existing ethnic 
political, national affiliation. We should be loving people in a way that completely confounds this world. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The believers that, Paul, that Peter excuse me, was writing to were being actively persecuted. The Roman government was cracking down on them. Many of them were put in prison and being murdered for their faith. And there was a lie going around that they wanted to overthrow the government. Because the world is very concerned about its institutions and its power in maintaining control. And they looked at Christians and they said, these people are loving people that we don't want to love. And these people are treating people like human beings that we said are not citizens. And so they started to persecute the Christians, and Peter says, look, we're not trying to overthrow the government. This isn't about armed rebellion. We know who our king is. He is on the throne. We don't have to worry about installing him on the throne of this country, this city, this state, or anywhere else. He is already there. And we can live with the confidence that our king is on the throne. And we can live as citizens of a righteous and just country governed by the Lord God. And at times that will put us in natural conflict with those around us. It's been true of believers throughout the whole of human history. We'll oppose wars that people won't oppose. We'll oppose mistreatment. We'll oppose slavery. We'll oppose these things because it's just right. And sometimes our opposition looks just like we're caring for people that they've said don't care for. And so Peter's saying, look, submit yourself to the government, not meaning you have to obey every law. Look, as Paul taught us in Galatians and in Romans, we are free from the power of the law. God did not free us from the power of the law to make us subject to the municipal code of the city of Indianapolis, right? It's not a sin if you cross the speed limit. That's what I'm saying to you. We are to be submissive to our government, not looking to overthrow it, praying for our leaders, supporting good order when the government is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And when it's not, we're just doing our thing, as Peter told the Pharisees. Judge for yourself whether we obey men or God. And this is the tension that we live in, doing good, loving people, and having the world call that evil. And if the world isn't calling us evil, we aren't loving people enough. If they don't look at us and have a big problem with the way we live and the way we talk, we aren't loving people enough. It's not about armed revolt. It's not about extreme, extreme legalism. It's about living at peace and loving the world around us and just letting that be so confusing that it puts a target on our back. Peter finishes this section, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The rest of 1 Peter 2, which we're not going to go into this morning, goes on to give specific instructions to people who are being actively oppressed 
people being lit on fire for their faith, people living under the thumb of harsh masters, wives being abused by their husbands, husbands being abused by their wives. And Peter goes on to give specific instructions for how to live when the thumb is on your head. So he's not talking to people who are fat and happy, living in a vacuum, living in safety. He's talking to people whose lives are being taken, who've lost loved ones. And to those people, he says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This morning, our takeaway, our application, our shoe leather that we put on this is pretty clear. Take stock of your allegiance. Take stock of where your allegiance is. Use this passage as a litmus test, a way of judging, evaluating whether speakers are speaking truth, whether they're people you should be identifying with. Are they malicious slanderers? Are they deceitful? Or are they speaking the true, reasonable words of God? Revel in your identity as one of God's holy priests. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a holy, uh, a holy priest, a royal nation. You are a son or a daughter of the most high God. You are royalty. Revel in that. Revel in that. Even as you are pouring your life out in love to other people, even as you are humbling yourself to other people, you know who you are, a prince, a princess of the Most High God. Use love and unity as a way of proclaiming the gospel. Unity is a gospel issue. It's how we tell the world that Jesus came from God and God loves them. Finally, honor the authorities. You will have conflict with them. You will have conflict with them. Honor them and you will suffer for it because Jesus suffered for it. And we are not greater than our master. So this morning, as we go and we take communion, we break bread and remind us that his body was broken. And we drink wine or juice and remind us that his blood was shed. We do it participating in his identity, remembering our living stone, our chief cornerstone, and we do it wanting, desiring to live like him and suffer the consequences that he suffered. And we make being his child the core bedrock of our identity and the way that we think not only of ourselves, but of each other. And we let a culture of love bring him glory and confound this world. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so gracious to us. Lord, we were not a people. We were just wanderers, lost. But you made us a people, a family. We were nomads, and you gave us a home. And we thank you for your blood and for your body for your great wisdom that you've been planning out throughout all time to tell the world how great you are and you chose a bunch of broken rocks 
thank you for your love. We love you, Jesus. Amen.